0: All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
3: From PRX, it's the radio variety show that's also its own hype man. Recorded in front of a live audience from the Alberta Rose Theatre in Portland, Oregon, it's LiveWire, with writers Saeed Jones and Kristen Arnett, with music from ages and ages and our fabulous house band. I'm your announcer, Elena Passarello, and now the host of Live Wire, Lou Burbank.
0: Thanks everybody for coming out to the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we are here once again uh, as part of the uh, Portland Book Festival and we're so excited to share some of the great work that's been put together by these writers we're gonna talk to this hour. The theme that uh, we picked for this episode is larger than life. We asked the crowd here at the Alberta Rose Theater to fill out a little uh, audience card, and we asked them, what is your fanciest little habit? Mm -hmm. Like that little thing that you do that just is kind of, you know, something self-care. A little fancy. A little fancy habit. Mm -hmm. And um, I was thinking about how I would answer that question. I think for me, probably the fanciest habit I have is that when I go through the drive-through at the coffee place, I will buy my dog a coffee. Not actually a coffee, but a cup full of whipped cream. Oh. This is, yeah, somebody said Puppuccino. That's <laughs> technically what it's called. And the deal is that, like, the, the leading American coffee chain, the one with a mermaid on the logo. I don't know why right. I'm being so coy. <laughs> I ran into Howard Schultz once, the founder of Starbucks, and he was carrying a cup from Starbucks. This was in a neighborhood. Oh. And they had written Howard on the cup. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was like, I bet they know who Howard is. But anyway, so. like the, this started because when you, if you go through the Starbucks drive through they will give you this thing they call a puppuccino for free. For it's your little, puppy. For your puppy. Or
3: for you if you just want more whipped cream and you want to have a fake dog.
0: Exactly. So my dog, Rudy, who is a yellow lab is not the, she's not the, the, the sharpest knife in the drawer, but she is very food oriented, and it didn't take her long to understand the sights and sounds of a drive through <laughs> and, and not only that, the sights and sounds of being one to eight blocks before you're at the drive through <laughs> She will be like, oh, are we on Iowa Street in Bellingham, Washington? I know how this story ends. <laughs> and it's the cutest thing because they, I roll down the back window, I have this very old Toyota 4Runner, the dog is in the far back, I roll down the window, I drive the car a little bit forward, and they hand the cup. The dog, she takes it very gingerly, it's the only elegant thing about her, she takes the cup very gingerly and walks it back to the back corner of the car and then obliterates it. The back of the car is a graveyard of paper cups that have had whipped cream in them. Enough about me, what's your fanciest little habit, Elena?
3: I have a very intense uh, post shower. I changed outfits like three times in between getting out of the shower and getting out of the house. I have a, the towel and then I have a terry cloth bathrobe for the immediate dampness, like droplet level dampness. But then there's still like residual dampness under the skin and your skin is still a little hot. I think hot. that's
0: h- how your body wants it. Residual <laughs> dampness under the skin I think is called being alive.
3: Yeah, yeah, no that's true. I, I'm not a big fan of being alive, no. Yeah. No, but, like, you know, there's that moment where, like, you're dry, but you don't really want to put on a pair of, like, jeans, you know? And all my jeans are tight because I refuse to go shopping so uh, for better-fitting jeans. So I have these, like, caftans that I wear post-dryness, pre-changing. Very Golden Girls. And I sort of swan about and say, but like, that's,
0: <laughs> But that's not even, like, that caftan is not going to go outdoors with you. That's not your outfit for going out in the world. That's just being indoors but not in the bathrobe? Well, it depends on
3: what kind of caftan it is, because there's the strictly post-shower caftan, and then there's the... I do have some caftans that I could wear all day if I'm not leaving the house, so I'll swap out to that one, you know, more embroidery. And then I have a few caftans that I would wear to like the grocery store if I was feeling especially bring me another Mai Tai. You know?
0: I have a very fancy bathrobe that let's just say I didn't not steal from the Beverly Wilshire, Mm. and it sits there in the bathroom, and I fear that if I put the bathrobe on, I would never take it off. Like, Uh. they would find me a week later Mm -hmm. looking like the Big Lebowski. (laughs) (laughs) Can we just read some of the audience uh, uh, feedback, please?
3: Here's some fancy habits from our audience. Here's one from Chris. Chris says, I use artisan water in my neti pot.
0: What? Pretty fancy. Actually, if you're going to use artisan water, the water that is going to go I think into your brain, if I understand <laughs> how neti pots work, that's that's a good one to really make sure the water is on point. Because because of where the the neti pot is, you put it up your nose. Yeah. And then it goes up into I assume the
3: into your prefrontal front cortex of your brain. <laughs>
0: I used to know what that was called, and then I used a neti pot, and it <laughs> has removed that knowledge from my brain. So that's a, that's actually a re- really good call.
3: Um, here's one from Heather. Heather says, I drink my vodka out of tiny antique shot glasses with long stems.
0: Ooh. I think that sounds nice. That's think, very classy.
3: <laughs> especially if you, like, line up eight of them, like, shots. Yeah. Just, like, down them all.
0: Dasvidaniya.
3: <laughs> and here's a fancy habit from Rylan. I like to spread football cards on the carpet in every room in the house and then play war games between quarterbacks and defensive tackles. P.S. I'm 12 years old.
0: P.P.S. I'm 43. Rylan, can I come play? That sounds totally awesome. All right, let's get our first guest out here. We have somebody just off stage who is becoming a larger than life figure on the literary scene. For instance, he was recently awarded the Kirkus Prize for his amazing new memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. Please welcome Saeed Jones to Live Wire. Hello. Hi, Saeed. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh. Hi, Portland. <laughs> this is radio, so I don't want to like waste too much time on it, but the windbreaker that you have on you. is, is I mean, you. I don't feel like we can really get into the interview proper without at least talking about it. It's if, if incredible. If,
4: I bought it yesterday at a store here. Uh, it, if, if you're listening, just imagine that I am a purple parasitic orchid. Um, only found in, in the rare village of Columbus, Ohio. That is what <laughs> I look like right now. I love it. It's, doesn't it feel like, like you need to hold your breath because if you inhale me, like, you'll be dead in 24 hours. <laughs> That's the goal. That is all I've ever wanted out of my clothes, to kill people with
0: beauty. Yes. Nature's way of saying, yeah, step back. Step back. Yes. <laughs> um... This book was just really incredible. I was I was talking uh, to you backstage about it. I, I feel like I, you know, white straight guy from the Pacific Northwest, totally different like lived experience than you, uh, young gay black man in Texas growing up, and yet I felt like it was so universal the stuff you were talking about. Um, the, the 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 sort of two things the book seems to hinge on is your being a young gay black man and having a a a lovely but also complicated mom.
4: Yep, which we all do, I think, if we're lucky. Really? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the relationship between the people who made us um, is always gonna be fraught because it's, you know, there's no blueprint, particularly if, like, your first kid and my mom was a single parent, there's no blueprint. Mm -hmm. You know, and every moment is unexpectedly high stakes, even the fun moments even the lovely moments, you know, those become, if we're lucky, very important memories. So it's always, I think, like just a complicated dynamic. But I loved my mom. Um, You know, I I write for myself, but I I, I love that people are connecting with the book in unexpected ways. Moms and grandmas and queer people and straight people. And, you know, because I think we are all fighting for our lives. That's, that's, That's the point, you know. And if you think you aren't, Struggling to figure out who you are on a daily basis, then you just have a bigger fight ahead of you.
0: Your mom uh, was a Buddhist, mm-hmm. which, which I would imagine was a fairly unusual thing in that part of Texas when you were Absolutely. growing up. Absolutely, yeah. And 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 yet, it sounds like the relationship that you had, at least the the talking about the fact that you were uh, young and gay was that was. That was not an easy conversation for the two of you.
4: Yeah, it was. Yeah, my mom was, you know, um, very liberal, very cultured. She worked for Delta Airlines for a long, long time. So she she worked as a flight attendant. She's seen the world. And so she brought that worldliness, a word that figures into the book a little later, into the way she raised me. We, you know, we loved um, learning about different cultures, Um, but um, queerness... My queerness and sexuality, we just couldn't talk about. Even when she was very blunt about sex in general. I remember once um, I was in high school and we, we were in the car, she was driving, and we got to a red light and she just turned to me. And no, there was, no, we were like silent listening to music. She, she just turned to me and she said, Do you masturbate? <laughs> oh, God. And I'm just looking at her like, What did the song that yeah, we what were listening possibly and she just says, I think you should. And the light turned green, and she just kept driving. And that was it. <laughs> that was it. So we had a, a funny, uh vibrant contemporary relationship. But me, when I came out, you know, to her and in college, my freshman year, it just became the silence that we couldn't talk about it. You know, I would bring up like my boyfriend's brother, and you see that in the book at one point. And I just look up from her, you know, just I'm trying to casually ease into. Uh, a simple conversation basically to ask for advice about boys because men are trash. (laughs) And gay is absolutely not a choice because (laughs) I super wish I was not attracted to them, but I am. (laughs) I am attracted to these handsome trash bags. And so I I wanted to (laughs) ask her some advice. And I looked up at her and she was looking at me. I describe it as like a person who's afraid of heights. It it felt like I was leading her to the edge of a bridge. Mm -hmm. It felt cruel in that moment to talk about a really simple, honest part of myself. And I think queer people, black people, we struggle with this all the time, you know? It's kind of like we're made to feel like we're being mean for being ourselves. It's like, why are you making us talk about this? It's hard. You know, like people like Black Lives Matter, please stop killing us. And people like, oh, my God, you're so aggressive, you know. And so that's what it felt like um, with my mom and I, even though we had a funny, you know, vibrant, loving relationship. But the thing is about those silences is that they begin with time to metastasize and they begin to color everything else.
0: I think that uh, a lot of straight people, they would have a hard time understanding why in, let's say, 2019, Mm -hmm. somebody would be hesitant to come out. Mm -hmm. And yet, for you, growing up, and even into your college years, you slipped in and out of being... Comfortable coming out to people and you sort of put yourself back in the closet at certain points Mm -hmm. Can you explain what that's like and and why it is that somebody would feel uncomfortable coming out even in this modern era? Where it seems like we're in a pretty accepting culture. Absolutely.
4: I mean, you know even right now the the current Supreme Court one of the Cases that they're considering. I think it's still being figured out right is whether it is legal um, to fire someone For being gay or trans that's happening now. So there were, I mean, that, and and listen, if you can't be yourself at your job, okay, that changes everything. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of people in this country who don't feel safe coming out in 2019, and who could blame them? If you are living in this country and you are made to feel that your job, your livelihood, might depend on being in the closet, stay in the closet as long as you need to. Yeah, really. I really believe that, you know, I, I try to, you know, coming out was important for me. I believe that when people are get to that part of their story where they're ready to come out and we all come out in different ways about different things. Right. But you have to do it when you're ready. And if someone is not coming out, I feel that there are often some reasons for that. And we need to think about it. You know, we need to say, like, why aren't you coming out? And us go like, well, what is going on that makes you feel that you cannot? You know share this part of yourself with us but it's but you know it's fluid you know i mean it's you know if i um when i leave here if i get in an uber and i'm I'm reading you know the micro gestures of my driver do i feel safe you know what i mean i know women think about this all the you know like the vulnerable uh you're like we're constantly kind of reading people am i safe in this space we come out every time you go to a new doctor you know what I mean? Um, I, you know, certainly writing this book, it's all out there. But, you know, when, I, when I've done different appearances, you know, I'm trying to read the kind of space, you know, when I step into a school space. Like, what is up? You know, so um, we're always
0: negotiating this, um, but it's, it can be fraught. Uh, the, the stakes are much lower for this, but I recently came out as a person who steals hotel bathrobes. And I, I and I learned and, and I, I thought about doing this so many times. And I learned <laughs> oh that God. this was not a safe space for me to do that. Um, We've got to take a quick break. We're talking to Saeed Jones. His new memoir is How We Fight for Our Lives. This is Livewire Radio from PRX. We'll be back in just a moment. Hey, have you subscribed to the Livewire newsletter yet? Every week, we share live show dates there as well as peaks from behind the scenes at each episode. The newsletter is also a great way to be part of our engaged community of listeners. You can discover acclaimed authors and thinkers, hilarious stand up comedy, and of course, live musical acts. You can subscribe today by clicking on Stay Informed over at LiveWireRadio.org. Welcome back to LiveWire from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. I'm Luke Burbank, here with Elena Passarello, we're here as part of the Portland Book Festival this week, we're talking to Saeed Jones, his latest book is How We Fight For Our Lives. Uh, You were, in the book, it really makes it pretty clear that poetry was a refuge for you as a kid, or at least as a young adult, why did it speak to you and what were you finding in there?
4: Um I mean I think I was first drawn to poetry because I've always been a good talker. <laughs> and you know a good conversation is really driven by like an intuitive kind of reading of the moment what's working and and that you know set me up I think for poetry right because you're it's it's driven by sound and image and you you read and you study the craft rigorously but then you know now as a writer it feels something more akin to jazz you know, and you're just listening to it, and you're like, okay, do we want to riff? You know, and you go for it, and so I just, I just found this natural inclination for it, um, and I loved it, and then I started getting praise for it, and that's, you know, we, that, that's important for us as kids. I think so many of us, you know, our career paths when we look back 10, 20 years, it's like, why did you become? Then it's like, I don't know. It was the first thing someone told me I was good at, mm-hmm. you know. And as a black gay kid in in the suburbs of North Texas, Louisville High School, fighting farmers. By the way, go farmers. Go farmers. (laughs) When I would write a poem, I remember writing a poem about Orpheus, uh, my junior year of high school, and a teacher who was not very nice to me. He praised me for it, and it that was huge, you know. Um, And so you, you, uh, I think at least I, I doubled down, you know, on the joy in those moments. And so it happened to be poetry.
0: And I want to mention too, for folks that haven't seen the book, when you say Louisville, Texas, it's not like Louisville, Texas, and it's not. Oh God, it's
4: so confusing when I moved to. But your
0: whole life must be explaining. No, (laughs) Louisville. Texas. Your mom moved you there because the schools were better. The schools were better. But what yeah. was it like?
4: <laughs> um, I mean, it's kind of what you think it sounds like. Uh, you know, it's, so Louisville is uh, just is in the suburbs, uh, just up the highway from Dallas. So it's right between Denton and Dallas, if you if you know that. Um, that part of Texas is very conservative, even more so, I would argue, than other parts of the state. There were black and Latino kids, like, in my school, but not that many, and certainly not as I started taking, like, you know, the advanced literature classes I was taking, you know. And um, I tell people that, you know, I um, was a passionate reader. My, by my senior year of high school, AP, English, and all of that, not a single book in class that was assigned, that we discussed as a class, by uh, a person of color. Not a single one. Um, and, you know, that last semester, my senior year, my teacher, the, the one who uh, complimented me on the poem, actually, he, was, he said out loud, he was like, um, I'm trying to decide this next book, what we should do. You know, it's between All the Pretty Horses by Cormac McCarthy, beautiful book, um, and Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. And I gasped, yeah. like you did just now, right? And I waited until after class. And I was always the kid who would not wait. Like, I, it was always like, "Sight is a great student, but he really needs to learn how to raise his hands. And I was like, but was I wrong when I spoke? No. <laughs> you're welcome. You are that idiot in the back row? No, I got the answer. Uh, <laughs> but I, I waited until the end of class, and I, I made my little case, you know, a little debate student that I was. I made my little pitch, and he still said no. Uh. And it just made me so sad, you know, and the rage (laughs) that you see um, in certainly in the college years in the book. But I will say, you know, my my writing in general has a ferocity to it. I'm not just angry or full of rage just because it's a personality fluke. I am disgusted by the way our country and its culture lies to us about what we intuitively know. I knew I deserved to be in a classroom and have a smart conversation with my peers and with my educator about black art. I knew I deserved that. And my classmates deserve that too, by the way, you
0: know? Yeah.
4: Um, and, and so it just broke my heart. So that was, that was what I was growing up with.
0: Yeah. yeah. Uh, we're talking to Saeed Jones about his memoir, How We Fight for Our Lives. Um up until pretty recently, you were the co-host of this morning show on BuzzFeed mm-hmm. called AM to DM. Yeah. But what I thought was so interesting about it was that it's a morning news and culture show mm-hmm. aimed, I guess you could say, primarily at millennials, at younger people. Sure. Or um, people
4: who, you know, who just yeah. vibing.
0: What are the people that are older than the millennials mostly not getting about millennials and how they're moving through the world as somebody who is one and who is creating content for them?
4: Um, I mean, you know, for me, I came from the perspective of a gay black man who grew up in the South, who just always felt I was being ignored by media. My face was not the face of Texas, right? And so I've always had that. You know, and even, you know, as, with queerness, pride happens in New Orleans. It happens in, in um, Oxford, Mississippi as well. Why don't we, like, talk about those communities? Because they are vibrant queer communities. Columbus, Ohio, where I live now, one of the gayest places I've ever lived. But, you know, that's not the way people often talk about Ohio. So then I, I just bring that to media. That's everything I do, you know, is about saying, I see you. Mm. I get it, you know, and and whether that is about young people or whether that's about uh, women and and talking about gender politics or I'm just like, I see you, Mm -hmm. I get you, let's talk, Mm. you know, and and what's wonderful about
0: Twitter, what's wonderful about Twitter. Yeah, (laughs) I want to see how this ends.
4: Um, (laughs) Is that every day we have the opportunity to learn Mm -hmm. that we just like don't in other ways, or had not had, you yeah. know? When I was working at BuzzFeed, when I started in 2013, I, I created the LGBT vertical. That was my first role there as editor. And, um, you know, I got to learn so much from, at the time, it was a hashtag um, called Girls Like Us. It was an opportunity for me to learn um, about the conversations resonant with black trans women, you know? And it was via a Twitter hashtag, you know? And, you, and, you know, and, and so I say all that to say, that's what we brought to the show. is like seeing that there's an opportunity to level the dynamic a bit and invite people into the conversations. And sure, I can get up and get on my horse and talk about it, but wouldn't it be more valuable to hear from those people? So I think that's something that millennial and certainly young people and like the younger, younger kids, whoa. And that's why, and I feel like Parkland was a real education for all of us where someone said, you don't want to fight the teens.
3: No. You're
4: going to (laughs) lose. Right. You see like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell. Mm, you don't
0: want it. You have. You stand no <laughs> chance against David Hogg on you Twitter.
4: You're, you are going to
0: lose. Yeah.
4: And I love that energy. And yeah. and I, you know it has to be akin. I don't know to you know the punk era. You know, or we you certainly saw this in the '60s. You know, and just when people are like. Both invigorated and somewhat terrified of young people. And I love that. That That is where my creative mind uh, lives anyway. That energy, you know, that vibrance. And sure, you know, sometimes you go, calm down. Why are you being so intense? Like, chill out. But you have to remember that their intensity is in direct proportion Right to the system. And I say this, we've given them climate change, sh- we've given them late capitalism, we've given them a broken healthcare system, we've given them, you know, nothing is working. Everything is broken. They are inheriting nothing but broken, toxic systems. And if they want to laugh while pointing out that this isn't a fair shake, I mean, good for them. Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. Uh, Saeed Jones's new book is How We Fight For Our Lives. It's incredible, please check it out. Saeed, thank you so much for being on LiveWire. <clears throat> Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder, but with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaair.com. This is Live Wire Radio, coming to you once again as part of the Portland Book Festival. Uh, the theme we picked this week is Larger Than Life, and we asked the audience here at the Alberta Rose Theater to answer a question for us. Uh, we asked them, what is your fanciest little habit? And uh, they submitted those responses. Elena passerello you've been collecting them. What are you seeing?
3: Here's one from Andrea. Yacht rock and coffee in the sauna.
0: Coffee in the sauna? That's a yeah. bold move.
3: With like... ELO or I don't know what's, what's Kenny oh, Loggins y-
0: or how about some Michael McDonald White Thunder? I don't know we got a tepid <laughs> applause from Ethan in the band, so you know that we're You know we're, we're doing well.
3: Here's one from Ian. I'm gonna I'm gonna start doing this uh, in my caftan Ian says, whenever I make any kind of sandwich at home, I always put toothpicks with pickled things in the cut halves. It makes me feel like I'm eating in a fancy 1950s diner.
0: So smart. Those little touches Mm -hmm. make all the difference.
3: And it's like Dagwood. Remember uh, Blondie and Dagwood? And he would always have a sandwich that would be like an olive on top of the bread with the toothpick through. Yeah. People always say he's a lazy bum, but that's amazing. Okay, one more. Okay, here's one from Lauren. Lauren's uh, fanciest little habit is a wine sippy cup so Lauren can enjoy wine in the shower.
0: <laughs> I'm just imagining that moment at the baby store. Oh, uh, you have a shower coming up or are you? Yeah, I do, literally. It's for me, in the shower. This is Livewire Radio. Our next guest is living the life, the life of a writer whose first novel debuted on the New York Times bestseller list, which we've heard is the big one. Um, It's a tale of what happens to a family in Florida and their taxidermy shop after their father commits suicide and they're left to pick up the pieces. It's been called Darkly Hilarious. The actual title of the book is Mostly Dead Things. Please welcome Kristen Arnett to Livewire. Hi, hi, Kristen. Welcome to the show. Hello.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, Okay, so just for folks who maybe haven't had a chance to to read the book yet, can you kind of lay out the general plot of Mostly Dead Things?
1: Yes, I will give you the elevator pitch. Um, Lesbian taxidermist in Central Florida takes over the family taxidermy business after her father commits suicide. Yeah. Yeah. That classic tale.
0: Yeah, that old chestnut. (laughs) Why did you decide on taxidermy as the family biz?
1: Um, well, you know, as, as most of us do, uh, I was spending a lot of time just messing around on the Internet, looking at things I thought were funny. And what I was doing a lot of the time was I was looking at really horrible taxidermy because I found it really hilarious. So I was, like, spending way too long online looking at these, like, extremely terrible pieces of taxidermy. And as I was doing that... What
0: makes a piece of taxidermy... More terrible than what I think of all taxidermy yeah. as being.
1: Um, I really think it's in the eyes. So, like, if the if the eyes are placed even just a little bit off, it's, like... Yeah. The one I really love is there's this, like, beautiful lion. It's this lion, and it's, like, very ferocious, and it's, like, set in this, like, like backdrop, and then you look at its face, and the eyes are just, like...
0: Right. <laughs> it's like the lion from The Wizard of Oz.
1: <laughs> yes, there's, like, a lot going on with it. But I spent all this time... Looking at this funny taxidermy, and because I'm also a librarian, I was like, oh, I'm really interested actually in how these come together. So I did, like, you know, what we all do. I went on Wikipedia and then just went down the rabbit hole looking at like the different processes and procedures. I sound like a librarian right now.
0: In this case, the rabbit (laughs) hole was about actual rabbits. Yes, exactly. So that was different.
1: So it really was a thing where uh, I was looking at so much of it, and it just became I became obsessive about it, I think. I was just obsessive about looking at, like, what it took to do it. And then the more I thought about taxidermy, then I was like, actually, everything's taxidermy. I'm like, memory's taxidermy. is taxidermy. And what do you mean
0: taxidermy. by that? I've heard okay. you say that in an interview. Can you explain yeah. that? Like, you talk about taxidermy being like a family.
1: Yes. Uh, well, the idea of, like, memory being constructed, right? Uh, a memory is like, it's a quote, but it's like, a memory is only the memory of the last time you thought of the memory or told it to somebody else. So the idea that memory is constructed or posed or structured in the way that we put it together in our own head, it feels like taxonomy to me because it's a lot of those same kind of things, right? The preservation of something, the posing, the curation is memory.
3: You sort of reconstruct it to make it appear lifelike yes.
1: and that's like a messed
0: yeah. up deer
1: on the wall. Yes, exactly. <laughs> My memory feels like that sometimes. Yeah, a lot of my memories feel like they have crossed eyes. So.
0: <laughs> what? Let's talk about your childhood a little bit in Florida. What was the kind of literary vibe in your home? Were your parents readers? Oh. What was your relationship with, with books and reading?
1: My family is extremely evangelical, Southern Baptist, very conservative. So I grew up in a very specific kind of household that reading wasn't necessarily encouraged or like certain kinds of reading wasn't. Sure. So I spent a lot of time, because I was a voracious reader and wanted to read. So I spent a lot of time secreting books away, um, books that, like, I read a ton of Stephen King. I was obsessed with Stephen King and I would want to read them so, and I also wasn't allowed to ever close my bedroom door. (laughs) So I was like sitting on the floor in my bedroom, like holding the book in my lap and like listening for somebody coming down the hallway and then chuck it underneath the dresser
0: we're talking to Kristen Arnett, her new book is Mostly Dead Things. When I read interviews with you, the first thing that's in almost every bio of you is that you're a queer writer. Yes. And that doesn't seem like it's an accident. I think that why is it important to you to make sure that that's something that people know about you and yourself as a writer?
1: Um, Because I, I mean, I am a queer writer. And I, a thing that I was thinking a lot about, I very, I was very purposeful in putting that in all of my bios and everything I do because, I mean, the things I am interested in writing about, like I like to write about Florida. I'm interested in families and these kind of like really kind of messed up or hard relationships because I think all families have that stuff. But another thing I'm interested in too is writing like life from a queer perspective And a thing that I think is really important is, um, especially when things started happening for myself and for this book, is that when you have success you hold the door open Mm -hmm. so that other people can come in too. Because ideally what would be great is if there would be like a million more kinds of queer books. Mm -hmm. So putting queer in my thing and having something be successful means hopefully like that enables more queer books, more of these different kinds of experiences and myriad, myriad types.
0: But the irony is that, like, one of the main characters in the book is named Jessa, mm-hmm. and she's queer, but it's not, like, a whole thing. Yes. It sounds like for yourself as a person in the world, you want it to be known that you are a queer writer, yes. but for your characters, or at least this character, yes. you that you don't want to be too obsessed with it.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, also a thing in writing this book, and also the kind of things I want to read, because, I mean, I'm a writer, but also I'm a reader. The things I want to read are, I didn't want to write or read another coming out story. <laughs> Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with coming out stories but I have questions maybe about them first of all a coming out story is I mean we come out over and over again so it's not a single experience but a coming out story is a especially a first coming out is a moment right a moment in time and it's also usually a trauma I would say it's usually a trauma even when things go well it's like a traumatic experience to be like gird yourself up and come out. So sometimes I wonder who the coming out narrative is being written for. I don't necessarily think it's always for queer people, I think it's for a straight audience. Mm. It's like the idea of trauma porn. Uh, so I like to think about that or consider it. And also the kind of books that I want to read as a reader, I was like, I want to read something where it's just a lived experience and someone happens to be gay. Like, I was like, I want to see the daily lived experience of a, a person who's gay. Like, I have problems with my family and I happen to be queer. I, my business is going under and I'm a gay lady. I have intimacy issues. I mean, not me not me personally. I don't have intimacy issues at all. <laughs> and I happen to be gay. So like, those are the things I was like, I want to explore this. But like, the story itself is like, right? Like, this is a family that has a lot of things going on. And also like how we cope with grief and loss and like the different trajectories those take with different people in a family.
0: Was there a character in the book that you uh, kind of identified with? Was it, is it the Jesse character? Is that too obvious?
1: Um, actually, for me, uh, the character I most identify with in the book is place, is Florida. Oh, wow. um, how I wrote in this book was like the most me that's in Mostly Dead Things is Florida, is setting. Because I wanted to write about Florida because I'm from Florida. I love Florida. I've lived there my whole life. Writing from a perspective of like almost a sensory experience. So it's like, what does it smell like? What do you hear? Like, what does the air feel like against your skin? Those are like my my personal kind of movements through the world there. So like the most Christian character, I guess is uh, Orlando. (laughs) Are you the embodiment of Orlando? Wow. I want to say that. Put it on my grave. Yeah. 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 Uh,
0: I read an op-ed piece you wrote in the New York times uh, recently about your love of Florida and also the pushback on this kind of Florida man or Florida just as this like place where everyone's going and doing dumb stuff. Yes. Um, However, you also wrote a piece for Bon Appetit. They were like doing this series about Italian restaurants and they approached you and you uh, wanted to write about the Olive Garden?
1: Yes, I did, yeah. Uh, I asked them too. uh, I, first of all, it came through my agent and she was like, would you have, like, is there some kind of like special, really like important family owned Italian restaurant you could write about? I was like, do you think they'd let me write about Olive Garden? Um, I was taking a lot of Tinder dates, women to Olive Garden at this point in time (laughs) previous to it. And I was like, I would love to write about that. Well, one of the things, (laughs) this article
0: by the way is great. It should be framed at every Olive Garden. Garden yeah. in America, which let me mention, my dad took me to an Olive Garden when I was a kid to give me a watch as a promise of my chastity. Holy! Which I had for a year. I lost it, and in that same week, I got somebody pregnant. See? So that watch had powers that I could not have understood at the time. But That watch is to, a condom. Back to you. I know. You know, condom would have been a better would have been a better gift. Okay, that's not what we're here to talk about. The the Olive Garden. <laughs> the Olive Garden, as you write in this bon appetit piece, Kristen, was a local restaurant
1: in Orlando. Yes, yeah. It's my Olive Garden that I go to pretty frequently. <laughs> it's next to a Michael's craft store. So um, a thing I love to do at Olive Garden, I mean now I have a girlfriend and I'm not taking tender dates there anymore. My girlfriend was like, When are you taking me to Olive Garden? I'm like, not you, you're special. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the hussies. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I love this Olive Garden because what you can do at Olive Garden, and you all need to try this, oh, God, I'm going to get banned from Olive Garden, is when you go in, you can sample wine for as long as you want.
2: <laughs>
1: they'll come out and you're like, do you want to try a sample? And you say, sure, and you taste it, and you're like, eh, could I try this other kind? They'll go get it, you take that sample, and you are like, what about this kind? And they'll bring it, you could just keep having samples. Yeah. Uh, tip. But, uh, yeah, you can just have a bunch of wine samples have a delightful meal and then it's like I'm kind of tipsy I'm going to walk to Michaels Crafts and like you know maybe buy some embroidery floss
0: <laughs> um Do you ever get tired of talking about Florida or in some way defending Florida? I mean, it's so associated. Other than Carl Hiaasen, I don't think I can think of a writer who's more associated with Florida than you.
1: Yeah, I I keep saying, too, it's like I'll stop talking about Florida or writing about Florida when it's not interesting, but it's always interesting. There's always something happening. Sometimes it's something super weird, uh, and, and sometimes it's just something beautiful for me. So... I don't. I keep waiting for it to happen because I am a person that I get like bored with things really easily. Um, but it, it, it's it's like the one thing that feels really lodged hmm. inside of me. I love. I'm like tapping my own. It's in here. Yes. It's in my heart. Sure. Uh, but it is it is something that I I feel obsessive over and continue to feel obsessive over because it's like this. It's also is so wide, and there's so many different parts of it, and so many interesting voices that are in there. There's been actually, like, a lot of really amazing literature just recently that's come out. Um, yeah, that are, Lauren and it's Groff's
0: for, book. We've had her on the program. Yeah,
1: Lauren Groff. Uh, Tikira Madden, who was also here this weekend, wrote yeah. a beautiful memoir that was about Boca, and also queer and biracial, like, really amazing. Uh, Jakira Diaz just had a memoir uh, come out cool. about Miami, and that book was insanely good yeah very very good so it's all these different kinds of stories about Florida because like you know I'm talking about Florida but I'm also talking very very specific kind of personal localized kind of Florida and Florida is so broad and there's so many stories there
0: are you comfortable with your greatest legacy being a picture of a lizard from a (laughs) 7-eleven that you took that became quite a thing on the internet
1: that was, um, it, was one of, it was a thing, too, that really prompted me into thinking more about writing about Florida because it was, it was this stupid, dumb tweet. Uh, so I was right, I wrote this thing because I was, I'm always in my 7-Eleven. I call it like my neighborhood bar. <laughs> I think they would prefer I did not. Yeah, no. I do.
0: The police have asked you to please They're stop like treating stop. it like your neighborhood bar. Please
1: stop. So I was in there one morning before I was going to work. It was really early and I was going to get coffee and there, yeah, there was like a lizard next to the coffee maker. I just called over my cashier. I'm like, yeah, there's a lizard over here. And, like, just jokingly, I was like, that's just Marvin. He likes the way the coffee smells. And this tweet went crazy viral. Like, it went, like, it had, like, something like half a million likes on it. People were, like... I die for the lizard Marvin. I was like, please don't.
0: <laughs> we <laughs> stand Marvin. Yeah.
1: People made art, like art. I It was very adorable. But then, and the best thing out of it was 7 Eleven followed me back on Twitter.
0: <laughs> Wait, but wasn't there also a component of it where 7 Eleven was trying to figure out which 7 Eleven it yeah, was? And they were you were like, like oh, I'm not
1: going to narc. I was like, I'm not going to narc on my buddy.
0: Because that lizard probably is not 100% food safety compliant, probably being next not. to the coffee.
1: Although, so like, The thing about that tweet for me that was not weird and just felt like a regular experience is if you're in Florida, there's lizards everywhere. There's like five lizards in my house right now, I'm sure. Like, if the cat hasn't murdered them.
0: (laughs) Um, This book is is darkly funny and it's also uh, extremely human and really interesting. So I recommend everyone grab it. It's called Mostly Dead Things. Kristen Arnett, everyone. We'll be back with more with her in just a moment. Hey, special thanks this episode to Mike and Jan Senchina of Beautiful Battleground, Washington. Mike and Jan are part of the LiveWire member community, and they generously support our show with a donation each month. And we're very grateful for that support because, honestly, we wouldn't be able to do the show without folks like Mike and Jan. So a big thanks to the Senchinas for keeping LiveWire going. Welcome back to Live Wire Radio. Coming to you from the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We are here once again as part of the Portland Book Festival. I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello. We're also talking to Kristen Arnett, who has written the novel Mostly Dead Things. Uh, as we have just established, you are a big fan of 7-Eleven. I am. You've yes. described yourself as a 7-Eleven scholar. <laughs> <laughs> but we wanted to see how deep your knowledge actually runs with a segment that we call "Let's Get Quizzical."
2: Let's get quizzical, quizzical, I want to get quizzical, let's see if you know your stuff.
0: Yeah, Livewire House Band. All right, here is the plan. We have assembled 11 true or false questions about 7-Eleven. Wow. Kristen, if you get seven of them right you truly are a 7-Eleven Scholar. I'm so nervous. We also have an actual Slurpee here oh. that was purchased just oh down the God. street. It appears to be some unnatural <laughs> blue <laughs> color.
1: That's called a fruit flavor. Oh,
0: okay. <laughs> so if, Kristen, you get seven out of these 11, you're a 7-Eleven Scholar and you will get the Slurpee. So you ready?
1: This is the hardest test of my life. Yeah.
0: (laughs) True or false, Slurpees are kosher. True. You're absolutely right. Yes. Kind of. Yes, they're mostly kosher. Diet Pepsi and Jolly Rancher-flavored Slurpees are technically not kosher.
1: What? Mm. Wow.
0: Some 7-Elevens get their machines certified kosher, by the
1: way. (gasps) You love to hear it.
0: You, You love to hear it. You just do. All right, 25% of Americans live within a mile of a 7 Eleven. Is that true or false?
1: I want it to be true. True?
0: You're absolutely right, it is true. How's she doing, Elena? Two. Okay. That would mean five more before you're truly a 7 Eleven scholar. True or false, Kristen Arnett, out of respect for the holiday, 7 Elevens. are only closed on one day, and that is Christmas. False. You're absolutely right, that is false. I went
1: there on Christmas this year.
0: (laughs) You are not alone. Not only are 7-Elevens open on Christmas, it's their biggest sales day of the year. Wow. (laughs) Which totally makes sense. Like, I know that no matter where I am, what hour of the night, or what holiday it is, I'm like, I bet the 7-Elevens open. 7-Eleven is there for you. That's right. True or false? You can pay your taxes at 7-Eleven. False? I'm sorry, that is true. The IRS allows people to turn in cash to pay taxes at participating 7-Elevens. Oh my God, what can't they do? (laughs) It was an audible gasp from the audience. (laughs) Okay, Elena, how are we doing? We're holding steady at three. Three correct, one wrong, four questions in, seven left, here we go. True or false? The Slurpee capital of the world is in Florida. I want it to be true. True? Oh, false. It's Winnipeg, Canada. What? Where for 19
1: years in a row, they have had the Slurpee championship. It's so cold. I've legit seen snow three times in my life.
0: (laughs) You would think Winnipeg, Canada would be the last place they would need a Slurpee. Okay. Okay. Uh, we've sort of hit a little bit of a rough spot here. I know, here. I'm
1: uh, sweating a little in my turtleneck.
0: Okay. All right, here we go. The best-selling worldwide Slurpee flavor is Coca-Cola, true or false?
1: True. Is it False! false? Okay. Fanta
0: Cherry no. is the bestseller oh, okay. worldwide.
1: The, uh, the Slurpee I get is um, half and half Coke and Cherry. Mm. You mix it. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Agreed. Mm. You alternate and then you have a Cherry Coke. So. Yeah. Mm.
0: Well, that sounds delicious. It actually sounds much better than Fanta Cherry to me. But according to our research, and it was rigorous, Fanta Cherry <laughs> is the bestseller worldwide. I'm about
1: to lose the Slurpee. I'm going to cry.
0: Elena, how are we doing on the scoring?
3: Kristen can only get one more wrong. That okay. is, we uh, are in trouble.
0: No, we got this. We got this. Here we go. 7-Eleven once sold a product called the cheeseburger bite. True or false? True. 100% true. I hate that. I have eaten many a cheeseburger bite after a late night out, because it's like the last thing on the roller. It's the thing nobody wanted during the day. (laughs) True or false, 7-Eleven's parent company is based in Tokyo. True. True. Yes, absolutely right, it's true. (laughs) <laughs> it's called seven and i holdings limited Ooh, based in japan that's fancy i assume that it's just like a mega corporation that at some point uh, absorbed them but like you know do you didn't notice the changeover when they were purchased by that company <laughs>
1: not in my particular seven that's good no. that's uh,
0: they're doing a good job then okay here we go <laughs> two more Eleven was not the original name of the store true or false mm. True,
2: true, is absolutely
0: right. <laughs> in 1946, the name changed when they expanded their hours from 7 a.m. to 11 p.m. Before that, it was called Totem Stores, as in, like, tote something around. Well, I don't like that. No, neither. Yeah, I don't neither. care for it. No, yeah. Last one Ooh. the largest member of the Big Gulp family is the Extreme Gulp. True or false?
1: Mm, False.
0: Yes, you're absolutely right. The largest option is the team gulp, which is 128 ounces.
1: It's a small child. Yes.
0: (laughs) Gather the team around. That's a gallon of soda. You knew that off the top of your head? You're absolutely right, Passarello. You also get a point. Yay! Share the Slurpee, you two. Yay! Kristen Arnett, the book is Mostly Dead Things. Thanks for coming on (laughs) Livewire. This is Livewire Radio from PRX. Our musical guests this hour hail from right here in Portland, Oregon. Their acclaimed debut album, All Right You Restless, was an immediate critical success. Their latest album is Me, You, They, We. Please welcome Ages and Ages back to Livewire.
2: It could be
0: That is ages and ages right here on LiveWire. That's gonna do it for our show this week. A huge thanks to our guests, Saeed Jones, Kristen Arnett, and ages and ages. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Special thanks to Amanda Bullock and the Portland Book Festival this week.
3: Laura Haddon is our executive producer, Lauren Masterson is our development director, Tim Harkins is our production director, and Christian Sager is our marketing manager. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko, and Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director, our house sound is by D. Neil Blake, and our on-air mix is by Corey Shreppel. Thanks so much to Carlson
0: Audio. Additional funding provided by the Oregon Arts Commission, a state agency funded by the state of Oregon and the National Endowment for the Arts. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, a huge thanks to Katie Watkins of Portland, Oregon, and Andrea Koenig of Hillsboro, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can listen to our podcast or sign up for our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.